Evidence and Answers. In a recent survey, sociologist George Barna listed the top six reasons young people leave the church. One of the reasons was that the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. Young adults stated that the church is not a place that allows them to express doubts. They did not feel safe admitting that sometimes Christianity does not make sense. Young people felt that they could not ask their most pressing life questions in church, and many who had significant intellectual doubts were not allowed to express their questions, nor were they finding reasonable answers. Is your church a place that engages the culture for Christ or ignores the challenges our young people face? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat presents part two of his message entitled, Called to Engage. Pat reveals the top six reasons why young people are leaving our churches and how churches must meet the challenges of today. Let's join Pat now as he presents part two of this message. She wouldn't stop. She throws it. Patrick never gone. Look at Patrick never gone. Everybody in the chapel turned and looked at me and started giving me the evil eye. You know, and I was sitting there going, man, I came just to be unnoticed and just to support the family. And, you know, you know, she made a big deal of it and got everybody mad again. And so, of course, you know, when it, you know, after you go and eat and, of course, nobody was talking to me again. So eventually, you know, I just left. <laughs> but pluralism, that is the spirituality of our culture today. All religions are fine and equal ways to God. It's just when you study them, you realize they're all contradictory. Steve Turner said it best. We believe that all religions are basically the same. At least the one we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. And pretty much on everything, they disagree. They cannot all be true at the same time. And finally, consumerism, the practice of our culture. Consumerism is the opposite to the spirit of Christ's teaching in 1 John 3.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This ideology is essentially defined as a never-ending desire to possess material goods and to achieve personal success. It is a systematic creation and encouragement of the desire to possess material goods and personal success in ever greater amounts. Richard Newhouse stated consumerism is living in a matter that is measured by having rather than being. That's a good way to put it. Who's got the biggest house? Who's got the fanciest cars? Who's got the nicest clothes? Who's the best looking? Many people use terms as materialism, but consumerism is much more than just materialism. It is a way of perceiving the world that has affected all young, old, rich and poor, Christian and non-Christian. 
It measures a person not by their character, but by their possessions, their appearance, and status. Consumerism presents us with the illusion and distracts us from the cosmic truth of our sin and separation from God. However, all these ideologies fail to fill the emptiness of the human heart. In our post-Christian times, we find that our message is contrary to the ideologies of the ideas of our time. We preach a sovereign and loving creator in a culture that rejects his authority in our lives. We preach an absolute truth in a relativistic world that wants to deny truth. We stand for an absolute moral code in an amoral world. We preach an exclusive salvation in a pluralistic world. Now, although these are very powerful ideas that create barriers from people coming to Christ, this also represents a great opportunity for the gospel. You see, these ideologies, naturalism, relativism, consumerism, offer no hope and no spiritual and ultimate meaning for life no moral foundation, no purpose for our existence. And our culture, especially our youth, are feeling the impact of these ideas and people are beginning to realize the rotten fruits of these ideologies. This was revealed in a significant study in 2003. The Commission on Children at Risk was formed to study the social, moral, spiritual foundation of a child's well-being. The commission included 33 doctors, research scientists, mental health professionals from nations all over the world. And these were not conservatives or all Christian men. They were from very various views. And their findings revealed that one in 10 students suffer from clinical depression. They summed up their findings stating this. We're witnessing a high and rising rates of depression, anxiety, attention deficit disorder, conduct disorders, thoughts of suicide, and other serious mental, emotional, and behavioral problems among U.S. children and adolescents. And you know, this is what they identified the cause as. This was the cause. A lack of connectedness, close connections to other people, and deep connections to moral and spiritual meaning. The commission recommended this. And remember, these aren't Christians. Okay? They're from very various views. They recommended for what may be the first time a diverse group of scientists and other experts on children's health is publicly recommending that our society pay considerably more attention to young people's moral, spiritual, and religious needs. You see, the present values of our culture stand in conflict with God's truth and the very nature and yearnings of the human heart for which we were designed. We're born with a God-given desire to find meaning, purpose, and make sense of life and reality. There's a longing for relationships with God and with others. There's a longing for truth. And at this time, the world is looking to see if Christians can offer any answers and if there's any substance to our message. You know, when I was speaking at Cornell University just last year in an auditorium, 
you know, of all the Ivy League schools, they were all built as what? They all began as seminaries to train pastors for the new frontier, except Cornell. Cornell began strictly as a secular university. There's no chapel on that campus. And I remember touring the campus, and as I crossed the bridges, they all had these like jail bars all around. And I finally asked our guide, why are there all these ugly bars on these beautiful bridges? And he said, oh, he says, our university has the highest suicide rate of any university on the East Coast. I thought, gee, how appropriate, how apropos. This is the stronghold of atheism here. Will Provine, Carl Sagan, you know, the, some of the strongest atheist philosophy comes out of this university. How apropos that this is known as the, quote, suicide university on the East Coast. I remember sharing that with students from Duke and North Carolina. They said, oh yeah, we all know that. We call that school suicide university. However, that night, I was presenting my case for Christianity for 30 minutes, and in 45 minutes, I was going to be in what's called the lion's den, where they get to ask any question they want. And we didn't know what the turnout would be. They had an auditorium that could seat 500 that night, and when I got up to speak, every seat was filled. They had hundreds more other students in an overflow room watching through video. It was a tremendously exciting occasion. Who am I? All right? I'm not Ravi. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm just this guy from Hawaii. You know, they all came here speaking, you know, who barely got out of high school, couldn't even get into UH. Who am I speaking at one of the top schools in our nation? You know, who am I? But I remember after speaking, professors came up to me and, and they stated, man, I've been here for 30 years at Cornell. I've never seen anything like this. Something is happening on this campus. But they said, not just here at Cornell, on Ivy League schools throughout the U.S., something has happened. These Christian groups are growing like crazy. Perhaps it's because the students are now realizing the dark and rotten fruits of naturalism and realizing its total implications and looking to see if there's an answer in the Christian worldview. Well, then how are we to engage our culture for Christ. Some Christians and churches choose to isolate themselves behind their walls. I believe we're called to engage our culture and our world for Christ. And there's two ways we're gonna do it. First, we must meet the challenge compassionately with love. Jesus said this in John 13, right? Before he was to meet his death, he said this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus said what? Love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? He paid everything going on the cross to die for us. He loved us unconditionally. And despite all that we had done against him, he loved us enough to go to the cross. And he says, in the same way, love one another. It's the kind of love that can only be given through the power of the Holy Spirit. That kind of love is unique that only the body of Christ can demonstrate and live out. And Jesus says, when the world sees this, what? 
they will know that you're my disciples. He doesn't promise that they'll convert and become Christians, but he said, wow, they can't ignore the fact there's something unique here. They will know that you are my disciples. It's through the demonstration of love the world looks up and takes notice and says, whoa, what's going on over there? Let me go check it out. I want to be a part of that. Look at how they love one another. Look at how they care for one another. Look at how they meet one another's needs. They sacrifice for one another. Whoa, man, what's going on over there? You'll catch their attention. I guarantee it. Well, I don't. God's word guarantees it. I remember a young man who used to come to our youth group. And he only came to check out the chicks. You know? We had good-looking girls in our youth group. And he only came to check them out. And every time I tried to talk to him, you know, he just kind of dodged me and everything. You know, drive away. It, it didn't seem like we were going to reach this kid for Christ. Well, you know, he just kept coming. And finally, after about six months, I cornered him at a house one day. And I said, hey, man. I said, he said you know, I know you've been coming. We never had a chance to talk and everything. And I said, anyone ever explain to you what the gospel is? And he said, well, all this time I've been listening to you, Pat, and you got some good arguments, and it's reasonable, you know, I can see Christianity makes sense, and there's a lot of proof for it. It's not a blind leap in the dark. He says, that's, that's kind of impressive. I've never heard that before. He said, I've been checking it out to see if it works. I mean, I said, what do you mean if it works? And he says, well, if you guys actually live out what you say you do. I said, well, you know, I was trying to give him excuses, right? I said, ah, you know, not, a, not everyone's perfect, right? And, uh, and then he just interrupted me. He said, and he said, there's love here that I've never experienced at home or my friends in the gang or anything. He said, that's really impressed me. More than all your arguments, it's the love I see here. I said, oh, would you like to be a part of the body of Christ? Would you like to receive Christ? He said, yeah, I'm ready to. You see, it was the love of the young people in there that demonstrated to him the reality and the power of the message of the cross. And that's what it's all about. Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples if you love one another. We need to engage the challenge compassionately with love, with the heart. But love alone doesn't bring people to Christ. Love alone doesn't bring unity. How do we know that? John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave everything He had, His only Son. Does the world love God? No. All the world become believers in Christ? No. We also have to meet the challenge intellectually. We've got to meet it with the mind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We demolish all arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Paul says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. The Greek word therefore destroy is kataskapto. Kata means go down. Skapto, throw over. So you dig down and you throw it over. Paul gives an image of Christians attacking a well-walled fortress. And before you can go in the, there and take prisoners captive, you have to go down and overthrow the walls that keep you from entering into that fortress. And here he says the walls of the mind are false ideas. And we've got to go in there and dismantle these false ideas. 
show them why these ideologies are false and present a case for why ours are true. We need to develop the knowledge and the skill to be able to do that. We need to meet the challenge not only with the heart, but with the mind as well. Not only compassionately, but intellectually as well. And one of the great flaws of evangelical Christianity today is that it neglects the mind, the development of the mind. Christianity was always a thinking person's religion. You don't throw out the mind to become a Christian, you embrace the mind. And that's one of the things that we have lost in our Christianity today, the development of the mind, the ability to outthink the culture around us, to engage those ideas and show them why they're false and our position is true. George Barna did a recent survey, the top six reasons why young people leave the church. And here are the top six reasons. Number one, the church seems overprotective. In other words, anything that the church perceived contrary to their teachings was satanic, evil, demonic. Don't study it, all right? Don't study the sciences. Don't study literature that's not Christian. Don't watch movies that's not Christian. You know, don't listen to radio shows that aren't Christian. Stay away, stay away, evil, evil. Just way too overprotective. Well, our young people are bombarded with the media and the things they study in school that oppose the teachings of Christ. And instead of telling them, don't read the apology textbook, ignore it, ignore it, read the Bible instead, you know. Oh, you know, don't, don't listen to, uh, to, to what your friends are listening to. No, 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 just, just, just way too overprotective. We need to engage the ideas of the culture. Is that what the biology textbook says? Hmm. What evidence does it have to back up Darwin's position? What does the fossil record show? Does natural selection and mutation cause macroevolutionary? What's the evidence show? Hmm. You know, is there no evidence for the existence of God? Is that right? You know, watch a movie, you know, like The Matrix, right? At the very end, the final battle, the virus dude, whatever his name was, says, Neil. Why do humans fight? For what reason? Why do you fight for humanity? Why do you seek to live? Why? And what answer does the hero of the human race give, Neil? Because I choose. What kind of answer is that? Because I choose. Huh. That's your reason for your existence and the giving of your life? Because I choose? You choose what? You know, well, that's atheistic existentialism's best answer. Watch a movie like that and say, hey, that's the best answer they got. Does that fulfill your meaning and purpose and hope in life? Is there a greater answer here? Were you designed for something greater? Go read Hemingway. Hemingway taught what? Life is ultimately what? Meaningless. You go after it with all your heart and you come to the end of your rope and what do you realize? Meaningless. It all ends in annihilation. And Hemingway, at the end of his life, what did he do? Shot himself in the head. Is that true? Life is ultimately meaningless? Interact with that. Say, is there another answer here? Is that the answer? Is that how you're going to live? Interact with those ideas. Second, teens and 20-somethings' experience of Christianity was shallow. They had deep questions. They wanted answers. And all they got was, I memorized this verse. Or, ah, don't ask that question. You know, or 
Eh, ignore that question. They don't want to be dismissed. They got deep answers. Why am I here? Why is sex before marriage wrong? Why is homosexuality wrong? So they're saying, ah, as the Bible says, no, that's it. No more discussion. They want a deep answer. Why is it wrong? Why? Churches come across as antagonistic to science, right? As Christians, we have for a long time been running away from the sciences when Christianity gave birth to the modern sciences. Instead of dismissing that, address it. Do you have that ability? You know, you don't have to be a scholar to be able to address it. If you came to our fundraiser, a mom was sharing how as her daughter was growing up, they began to ask all these questions and she couldn't answer it. She came to our apologetics conference and saw there were answers and equipped herself and was able to dialogue with her kids about it. Right? By the way, to equip yourself, great conference here. Christianity <laughs> and science, yeah, right on that issue. Reason number four, young Christians' church experiences related to sexuality are often simplistic and judgmental. Fifth, they wrestle with the exclusive nature of Christianity. They were saying, okay, what the Bible teaches is true. Anything contrary to it is false. How can that possibly be? How can my Buddhist friend be wrong? How can my atheist friend be? They're such good people. How can they be wrong? They weren't getting good answers to that. And six, the church feels unfriendly to those who doubt. Young people who would come in and ask questions were told, don't ask that here. If you're going to ask that kind of question, beat it. Go somewhere else. All right? I remember I was talking to a young man, about 25, 26 years old, who had left church, and we were having lunch, and he was sitting there, and we were just making small talk, and his friend goes, that's here an apologist. He's a defender of the Christian faith. Ask him any question you want. And I was like, you idiot. <laughs> what, what are you doing here? Well, anyway, so this guy just fired away question after question after question after question after question. We stood there for three hours. As I stood there dialoguing, I said, man, you bring up a great point. You know, and I said, well, here's the answer to that. Or here's why what you just said doesn't make any sense. Or, you know, he was asking, when you die, you go six feet under. There's nothing more. And I said, how do you know that? He said, well, um, I said, how do you know there's not an immaterial essence that survives the death of the body? How do you know that for sure? Said, well, and he looked at me and goes, how do you know that? And I said, I thought you'd never ask. You know? I said, I know because of the resurrection of Christ. How do you know that's true? I thought you'd never ask. We just went through it all. Finally, at the end of three hours, he went from atheism to agnosticism. So we got him one step closer. He said, I'll admit there is a God but I can't believe Christianity is true just yet, okay? I said, no, that's fine. Come back, we'll talk some more. And when he was done, he shook my hand. He said, do you know why I left the church? I said, why? He said, because I would ask all these questions as a high schooler, and the teacher would always get mad and tell me to be quiet. And eventually, they told me, go somewhere else. And I said, I would go to another church and ask these questions, and the teacher would tell me, don't ask. Don't ask. You know, go somewhere else if you're going to ask. Just believe. And he said, I finally realized Christianity didn't have any substance to it, so I left. He goes, you're the first guy that allowed me to sit here and ask, and you took my question seriously. And I said, you know what? And he goes, what? I go, shame on those churches. Shame on them. 
He said, really? I said, sure. Jesus, Paul, you look at the apostles. They wanted people to ask them questions. I said, if this is the truth, it should have some answers, huh? He said, oh, well, yeah, it should. And I said, you got any doubt? You got any questions? Come ask me. If you, got a, you find a church that won't take seriously your questions, don't go there. I'll go find another one. He said, man, you're the first guy that ever I could ever ask questions to and just be honest with. You see, a bunch of those top six reasons, most of them what? Require an approach that requires what? The mind and the heart. They require both. You know, my professor summed it up best. When we asked him, how was it that Christianity in just three centuries was able to conquer the Roman Empire. How did that happen? And he said, to put it very simplistically, here's how it happened, gentlemen. The early Christian church were powered by the Holy Spirit and they could outlove and outthink the culture around them. And when you have a movement that can outlove and outthink the culture around, he says, that is an absolutely unbeatable combination. And I hope that's true for us today. May we engage in post-Christian times, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the ability to outlove and outthink the culture around us. That makes us unbeatable. This concludes Pat's message entitled, Call to Engage Your World. I hope you were inspired and challenged by this study. If you miss any part of this message, log on at evidenceandanswers.org and you can listen to the entire study and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us each week as Pat and his friends provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh.